Y'all, we appreciate Samuel Merritt University so much for continuing to help keep this podcast going. They want us to tell you about their new Advance Your Practice Scholarship. They're offering a $10,000 scholarship to anyone who enrolls in their MSN, DNP, or Family Nurse Practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. If you're interested in getting more information about the programs, you can visit them at fnp.samuelmerritt.edu and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's fnp.samuelmerritt.edu. And as always, we'll put that link on our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. Hey, everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to our podcast where we talk about nurses and other healthcare professionals doing both good and bad things. Today, I have an extremely popular social media influencer, the nurse Erica from TikTok. The nurse Erica uses her platform to bring awareness to major issues in healthcare and is an advocate for nurses all over the country. I met her at Redonda Vaught's trial in Nashville because many of her followers actually donated to fly her down to Nashville to so that she could represent them because for those you know people who couldn't be there and so it just tells you how you know what a good following she has and how loyal her followers are to her and how supportive people have been throughout this whole trial. Welcome nurse Erica so glad to have you Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. I'm really glad to have you on the show. I'm really excited to discuss this case today because I think it's going to help us contrast it with what happened with the Redonda Vought case and why I think this case is very different. And we can sort of talk about another side of medical errors and the different things that can happen and just really kind of dig into med errors and what happens in hospitals all across the country, all over the world. Before we get started, I do want to talk about May the 13th. So after this happened, after Redonda's verdict came down, I was really upset about it. And I went on to Facebook. Yeah, I went on Facebook and and just started a Facebook group called Nurses March for Redonda Vought. I knew I was going to be there and I wanted anyone who possibly could be there to be able to come. I didn't know how many people would be able to or would respond. And Nurse Jessica or Nurse Jessica Seitz is going to be there. Nurse Erica is going to be there. And those two and their platforms being as big as they are, they've been talking about it. It's really helped the group to expand. And now we have, I think we're going on 8,000 members of the group. And Nurse Erica was nice enough to come on as an admin and help with sort of moderating and keeping control of it because that many people, obviously, it's not easy to control all of the content on there. And so if you guys are interested in connecting about this case, if you want to go to the march, whatever, if you just want to support virtually wherever you are in spirit, Go to Nurses March for Redonda Vought on Facebook. What you have to do is 
when you search, you have to search in groups. So when you go to the search bar, you have to choose groups when you type in Nurses March for Redonda Vought. And then the group will come up. Otherwise, you won't be able to find it. A lot of people have said they've looked for it and weren't able to find it because it's under groups. Once you do, just request to join. We'll approve for you to be on there. And once you get on there, though, there is one more step you have to take. And that is to click on the purple square at the top under events. It says RSVP. Just click on that and let us know that you're coming. And just say, yes, I'll be there or, you know, can't make it or whatever. That'll just kind of help us with a head count. Yeah, it's in the events section inside the featured videos portion. Yeah, it's kind of pinned to the top of the group under featured. So it should be easy to find, I think. And those of you who live in Nashville, Tennessee, if you know someone who lives in Nashville, Tennessee, Davidson County, the district attorney who chose to bring charges against Redonda is running for re-election. There are campaign ads everywhere. There's no way you could miss it. There is a woman who is absolutely fabulous. Her name is Sarah Beth Myers. She is running against him. Her platform, everything she stands for is wonderful. But most importantly for us, she is 100% against the prosecution of Redonda Vought. She believes that Glenn Funk did that in order to just make a name for himself or just get headlines. more publicity headlines and that he this is something that he is known to do. He doesn't really worry about fighting crime or, or going after, you know, trying to tackle difficult... Intentional, violent crime. No, he doesn't worry about that. He's focusing instead on someone that's no longer exactly. a threat. That's exactly right. So... If you live in Davidson County in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, or if you know someone who is there, please, you know, do whatever you can to get every single vote matters in these small elections. Every single vote matters. So do whatever you can to get to the polls or get your friends to the polls. And hopefully we can make a difference because that will send, I believe, I really do, that if she can be elected and we can get him out of there, that will send a message to district attorneys all across the country it will affect all of us. Absolutely. And that election is right around the corner, right? It's May 3rd. It's coming up. Yes. Early voting is in, what, 10 days? I think April 13th, I believe is what they were saying. So you have early voting. You guys look into that. Uh, by the time this episode comes out, it will have passed the, the deadline for registering to vote. But if you're registered to vote, either go to early voting and vote or May the 3rd is election day. Yes. And it's so important. You know, Nashville is such a medical centered town, a city. If we could get the majority of healthcare professionals out to vote, it would truly impact this election. And it would send, like you said, a strong message to district attorneys across the country. So I guess we can get started with this Badner story. It's not going to be an easy story to tell. It is very disturbing to think about the error that this nurse made. It is about a medication error. And this is very different from what happened in the Redonda Vought case. So we're going to kind of compare and contrast. So I want you guys to think about October of 2020 and what all was going on during that time. And you know, October 2020, that was really when the pandemic, everyone was kind of settled into the idea that we were in a pandemic and it was bad. We were, everyone was having to wear masks and the ICUs were filling up, the mm -hmm. hospitals were filling up, lockdowns were happening. We were running out of PPE in hospitals. It was just a mess. And 
nurses and other healthcare people were quitting their jobs. And so we were, the staffing issues went from what was a bad situation before the pandemic to unimaginable. Yes. It's a shocking one. Yes, it is. So I'm trying to set the stage and I don't know. I don't know what the situation was with staffing. I'm going to have to assume it was probably not good though. Yeah, that's a fairly safe assumption, you know, but yeah, October, 2020, height of the pandemic, arguably the worst time perhaps in the past uh, couple of years, you know, we can only imagine the working conditions. Yes, I would definitely imagine that. And so just keep that in the back of your mind, you guys, when you're listening to this story, I think there's going to be a lot of nurses that are going to gasp and like, just prepare yourself. Okay. It's not, it's a, it's a terrible story. But during this time, There were lawmakers that were trying to protect healthcare workers, nurses, probably, let's be honest, let's be real, probably hospitals more than anything, but from, I guess, lawsuits and from just given the stress, the strain that the healthcare system is under. So they were passing these laws left and right. And if you look up laws, especially under specific states, like look under the state of Tennessee, you'll see all kinds of laws under healthcare that are like being proposed and some were passed to protect people. One of those laws was had to do with specifically with COVID-19 and liability. And so this is going to come into play because, you know, of when this uh, incident happened. Right. There was also the federal law, the uh, Federal Emergency COVID Act that essentially told nurses and healthcare workers that they would be safe from any potential liability of incidents that could arise during the course of the pandemic. Exactly. And so keeping that in mind, in October of 2020, there was a nurse, and I'm not going to say her name because I don't necessarily, for one thing, this is out of a couple of articles. You can find two or three articles, but they all, I think, stem from the same story that broke. Some one, I believe, one reporter broke the story, and a few other outlets have repeated it. So there's not a, a lot of verification to the story. So I don't want, I don't have a reason to believe it isn't true, but I don't know about the details. And I don't want to necessarily. Uh, say her name. Her name is relatively common, so I don't know that it really matters, but still, just not going to do that. But what happened is that there was a man who was in the ICU at this hospital in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was being treated for lots of comorbidities, lots of medical issues, including COVID-19. And so apparently what happened is this particular nurse, and we do not know much about this nurse, We don't know if she's a travel nurse. We don't know if she was a new grad. We really don't know. I would love to know how much experience she has. And you just can't really find that information. Yes, exactly. I would love to know that as well. I highly suspect she was a new grad and possibly a new grad traveler. That's what I would suspect. But I I don't know. So for some reason, this nurse was giving this patient medications. And this patient did have COVID-19 and was sick enough to have to be placed on a ventilator, but the doctors had been documenting in his chart that he was progressing, that he was doing better. So all of a sudden for, I mean, really no apparent reason, the patient died. 
very abruptly. It, the patient just coded and died. So the family was very concerned because, yes, he was sick. They understood that. But not that there was really no reason for this. Why did he just die immediately? There's no an, there's no answer. Well, a lot of times when there is an older person, and I, again, I don't want to give any identifying information, but when there is an older person that's in the hospital that has lots of different comorbidities and they pass away, especially having COVID, they were right. in the ICU, they were on a ventilator, there may not necessarily be a an autopsy. I mean, that's it would be fairly common for the medical examiner to refuse to do an autopsy. And so I think in this case, they probably were not going to. Especially during that time, because the medical examiners were overwhelmed at that point. Yeah, I think they were probably just going to be like, well, look at all of the, well, look at all was what was that was going on. So maybe we would just consider this sort of an expected outcome right. and not something that we need to investigate. Well, the family would, was not going to have any of that. The family is saying, no, I understand he was sick. I know he had a lot going on, but what happened for him to die immediately? We want an explanation for that because it doesn't make sense to us. You can't tell us definitively what happened. Did he have ST, ele ST elevation? Did he have a, a heart attack? There are things that, that you can tell, you know, even if you don't do an autopsy, usually the providers can look at a situation and say, well, this happened or that happened. We suspect this or we suspect that. But in this case... They were just sort of, you know, just like, well, I don't know, you know, he maybe this or maybe that. But the family is just like, no, you, you don't just die like that all of a sudden. So an investigation that was done by the medical examiner's office showed that he actually didn't die from any of the comorbidities or conditions that he was suffering from at the time, including COVID-19. Instead, he died because a nurse there inexplicably crushed up medications meant to be taken orally and pumped them through an intravenous line. This caused a blockage that killed him within minutes. His main cause of death is acute embolization of foreign material, is what the medical examiner said. Again, we don't have a lot of details confirmed. I am taking this out of an article that is, I, I think it, it's a fairly, I think that the author is reputable, a reputable author because I know that she has done some work in Knoxville for the Knoxville News Sentinel. I've seen her around her name. And so I personally would trust that she did the investigation and has reported this to the best of her ability and that she feels pretty comfortable that all of her, all of the information is correct. But I also don't have a way to verify it myself. And I, so I want to just be sure that everybody understands this is alleged and it is coming from this article. And I believe it's called The Lookout. Let me just double check that. The links will be down in the in the notes anyway, but let me just make sure. This nurse called the medical examiner's office because she had to because you know at the pa at the patient's family's insistence, but didn't disclose that she was the one who they suspected as pushing, and and she knew she did. I mean, she did, she knew that she had pushed the meds, and it's it sort of understood in this article that it happened, there is a lawsuit that was filed by the family, wrongful death lawsuit against the nurse, against the, the medical center. And then this medical center 
is using this clause, this law, I guess, that was really meant to, you know, under the federal emergency COVID-19, you know, pandemic order that was meant to protect hospitals and I guess health healthcare workers. But they are thinking, according to this article, that the facility and the nurse are, quote, legally bulletproof from liability in this patient's death based on this law. So... Right. Yeah. They really feel that they are shielded from any potential liability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's gone to a judge and the judge needs to make the determination if they can move forward with litigation or not. Yes. And I think what we were saying earlier, uh, forgive me if we're, if this is, if the, this story is a little choppy, you guys, because we had a little technical difficulty and we had to sort of start back over in the middle. So if we pick up at a weird spot and you're like, wait, they already talked about this. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> so we're trying to go back and pick up where we left off. But what really is to me, like just without even thinking about whether or not they can use the law or not, whether that is going to work, I, I just wonder, there isn't a lot of information. And I, the, the nurse's name is listed in this article, and I tried to do some research to find out whether or not she still had her license, whether or not, you know, what happened. And there is, it's like crickets. There's just nothing out there, not in the board of nursing, yeah. no investigation. I mean, that I could find anyway. And normally you can find those things listed on a board of nursing mm -hmm. website, even if it's an ongoing investigation that has not been concluded yet. Usually there will be something listed, but you looked with the, with her name and there was nothing. So that's a little odd. Right. And here's the thing. So you guys know, I have been saying over and over again that Nurses and, and doctors and other healthcare professionals should not be held criminally liable for making errors in in the process of doing their job that lead to death or bodily harm. And I, I believe that 100%. But according to this article, this nurse decided to try to cover up. And she so she falsified the medical record to make it look as though the medication was not given. And so that is a felony. You cannot falsify medical records. I know we all learned that in, in nursing school, how important it is to document correctly, to document as close to real time as possible, to try to be very accurate in your documentation. And of course, to never say that you did something if you didn't do it or that, you know, or to somehow try to misrepresent what happened. You just can't right. do that. Yeah. And so- it went from a mistake and a medical error and a really unimaginable one, a completely, you know, just kind of thinking about myself as a nurse and what, what all is involved in being a nurse and at, at the bedside or in any capacity. There's so much to know. There's so much, so many things, so many procedures, so many interventions, so many different ways patients can get medications, so many different ways to mix medications, really. I mean, as we learned in the Redondavat trial, there are times when the medications are in powder form that are reconstituted and then given through an IV. That is not the same thing as crushing them yourself because when you crush, Correct. Uh, there's no way to completely 
dissolve something to where it could go through, you know, an IV. So you would never do that. You would never crush up a medication and put it in yeah. IV. Ever. It's an entirely different process, mm-hmm. reconstituting versus crushing and getting it in a liquid form. Entirely different. And yet there are so many different ways to give meds. And sometimes what we actually do in nursing interventions, it seems counterintuitive. So I guess it's understandable. It's hard to think about, but it's understandable that a nurse who has no experience with this could somehow crush up the medication, have it all dissolved in sterile water or in water. Again, it's so hard to imagine. Yeah, it it does seem inconceivable to me as well, and probably to most nurses. You know, this is a story that is told to most nursing students when you're in nursing school. It's an old wives' tale that this happened once upon a time, and it scares Mm -hmm. the, the crap out of you as a nurse, and you never forget this. You keep it in the back of your mind, and we are always taught to follow our lines. So... You know, a patient can have numerous lines. They can have an NG tube, a G tube, an an OG. They can have multiple IV lines, you know, all sorts of things. But you always have to follow from where you are putting anything in to the end of it to see what line it is. Where does it end? And we can assume that wasn't done in this case. Yeah, I think so. There Clearly, there had to have been a lure lock on the end of this syringe that she was using most of the time, you don't use a, a Luralock syringe when you're dealing, well, I don't know if any time you do use a, a Luralock syringe when you're dealing with an NG tube or an OG tube or a PEG tube. A lot of the newer... It's different. Yeah. A lot of the newer NG tubes and OG tubes have a sort of different end that it locks, but it's not like what you would use on IV tubing. It would not work on IV tubing. And they do that on purpose right. so that you can't accidentally put in tube feeding, for example, into an IV, which has apparently happened at some point. Again, hard to imagine someone thinking that was acceptable, but it happened. And I just, I think that there are medical errors, medication errors that can happen that I would be able to do that someone else, a lot, probably a lot of people would look at this situation, look at the error and say, how could you be so stupid? How could you do that? I would never do that. And given all the circumstances to be just right, maybe you could do it and you don't even realize what you're capable of doing, the mistakes that you're, you're capable of making when you're under pressure, when you're brand new and you haven't had any experience with central lines and OG tubes and but, but why is I, what I really have a hard time with when I really think about this, why in the world would a nurse who has so little experience, I mean, let me put it this way. How could a nurse who could make a mistake, a nurse who could make a mistake like this cannot possibly have had a lot of experience in the ICU dealing with central lines and OG tubes. And there's just no way that a nurse who has a lot right. of experience doing that could make this mistake, right? Let, let's play devil's advocate for a minute. So we assume she's a new grad. We, we can't confirm that. But we do know that a lot of new grads that graduated during the pandemic had almost no orientation. And a new grad typically needs significant amount of orientation and a dedicated preceptor. 
And I've been hearing consistently for two years from new grads that are saying they got almost none. They were literally just thrown into the lion's den and told to figure it out. And of course, every other nurse on the unit is also overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and probably uh, not staffed at a safe ratio. And so are they even available to answer questions or to be a resource to a new grad nurse, right? I I wish I could say I was surprised to hear this. I mean, it was very shocking to read it, but considering what we've heard taking place in the nursing profession for the last two plus years, I'm not that surprised. We have really set nurses up for failure in many cases. Well, I agree. And this well, this was right, you know, we, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, this was right in the heart of that. This is when they weren't allowing nurses, nursing students in the hospitals to do that last crucial uh, semester where you spend a lot of time in the hospital at the bedside following an experienced nurse. I love students and I love precepting and and I love to teach. And so whenever there's a student, I'm always like, yeah, you can come with me. I where some some nurses are like, I don't want a student, you know, just because it's yeah. a lot of stress and it's more it's work. Not, it is. It is a lot yeah. of work and it's not easy and it, it's kind of scary cuz they can distract you, but I try to ha- I have a certain way that I do things and it's pretty methodical, it's pretty I, I very consistent whenever I have a student with me. I just do everything a certain way. And I explain everything a certain way. I lay out the medications a certain way. I let them do certain things. It's very controlled. And I just make it very clear what my expectations are and what they're going to be doing for the shift, what they're, you know, what I will allow them to do and that they're not allowed to do anything unless I'm right there. But I love working with students. I really, I feel like it's my, you know, it's part of my job is to try to help the next generation that's coming along. So I want there to be good nurses. If there's not people willing to, with a good attitude and with a welcoming spirit, if there's not people willing to do that, you're not going to have good nurses coming after you. So you, you've got to be able to do that. I wish you know someone would have done that to me. Actually, I did have people do that for me, and I appreciated that. Yeah, and you know, to piggyback onto that, we don't have a lot of experienced nurses left at the bedside in many places because working right. conditions have been so poor. Unfortunately, they've left to do other things, whether it's in the nursing profession or outside of the nursing profession. And so what you have as a result is other inexperienced nurses training inexperienced nurses. You have uh, new grads being the charge nurse because they're the only full-time employee and the rest are travelers. So we're really doing a disservice to the next generation of nurses. We are setting them up for failure instead of really supporting them and lifting them up as we should be. You all know I've talked about how difficult it is making that transition from being a student to being a professional nurse. When I first became a nurse, it was really hard. And I've not been a nurse for that long. I just graduated in 2015. But it was really difficult because there wasn't a nurse residency program at the time where I lived. That's why I want to tell you about the nurse residency program with HCA Healthcare. This program supports newly graduating nursing students at the early stages of their career. HCA Healthcare's year-long nurse residency program helps first-year nursing students to transition from the classroom to working in the field with confidence. You'll develop critical thinking skills with hands-on clinical experience, and you'll get support from a whole community of caring, experienced nurses and other nurse residents just like you. Plus, nurse residents get an 
opportunity to go to different areas of the hospital and learn from all sorts of different types of nursings in different settings like ER, critical care, surgical services. That's an invaluable experience. And not only that, HCA Healthcare's nurse residency program comes with other great benefits like tuition reimbursement and student loan assistance, 401k match, clinical instruction by subject matter experts, continual support from mentors, and a lot more. So build a foundation for your career at any of HCA Healthcare's 184 hospitals across 19 states. Students who are preparing to graduate and recent grads are eligible to apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD Stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And I have plantar fasciitis. So now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care, be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. What you're describing, having new grads being preceptors and being charge nurses, that was actually going on before COVID. It was before the pandemic. When I was a new grad in 2015, I graduated in 2015. And I, when I was a new grad and started working at this very small hospital, there was no one that I worked with that had been a nurse longer than like two years. That was, that was the experienced nurses had been a nurse for like two years on this step down unit. And so they knew a lot about, you know, those cardiac patients and they had enough experience that they could do their job well, but it's, you know, I remember when I had, after I'd been a nurse for two years, I, I was comfortable with myself, but there was still a lot I didn't know. And I figured I I really found out how much I didn't know when I went to take the uh, PCCN to get my certification. And I thought I've been taking care of these patients for two years. I should be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And it was hard. I had to study for months to before I took that test because when I took a like a practice test, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so hard. And then I started studying for it and started learning things. So much more. And I'm just like, how could there be so much more? I've been taking care of these people for two years. What have I not known? What have I missed? You know? And I think people don't understand that's all like just the general public. 
how mm-hmm. much responsibility is placed on our shoulders to help to be the eyes and ears for the doctor, to let the providers know when acute changes happen. And that means that we have to understand what we're looking for and we have to know so much. Right. And so when you throw these nurses out onto the floor with just a couple of months if, you know, of, ex, of preceptorship, so you take mm-hmm. a, a nurse who just graduated, say the gra- they graduated in May. The pandemic started, and I think it started to, re- what, kind of vamp up in April, like March, March or something? Yeah. And so say there were clinicals like that last month or two, and and or even semester, you know, summer semester, that people are just supposed to be mm-hmm. going to the hospital to do their preceptorships and really work alongside an experienced nurse and get hands-on experience like doing right. stuff. And they didn't get that experience. They were told if they You're weren't not letting them in. Mm-mm. They were not yeah. letting them in. They were yeah. especially not nice. They were doing use. simulation labs instead in front of a computer. And I have gone in and done some of those simulation labs for research on a paper. And they're terrible. They are absolutely terrible. I don't know how anyone can learn anything from those. Well, it's just not going to replace. There's not nothing. I don't think. I don't think there's anything that's going to replace hands-on experience with an experienced nurse right. right there beside you, allowing you to do things while they are watching everything you do and guiding you along the process and stopping you if you make a mistake or you, for you to ask questions with everything that you do. There, there's nothing can possibly replace that. And so there was like months of nursing students that didn't get that experience, and then. They get thrown onto yeah. a f- onto the floor in a horrible situation where the now the preceptors that are working were so overwhelmed that they didn't yeah. probably have adequate time to spend with their orientee explaining things or and empathy teaching them because they were pulled yes. in so many directions. Yeah, and so a lot yeah. of these new grads in, in orientation were treated almost as extra nurses. Well, you've got an orientee with you, and so they'll just mm-hmm. dump more patients onto a nurse who's precepting someone because you're, there's two of you. That's not the way that's supposed to work. It's not that way in staffing. Yeah. It's not how they're paid, you know, and it's not supposed to work that way for a reason. It's it isn't not. safe. And so you know, they often will gaslight these poor nurses as well. And tell them things like, oh, you're doing such a great job. We're going to take you off orientation early. You can handle it. You're doing such a great job. And, you know, when you're a new grad, you don't know different. You think that's a little bit of a compliment. And you just kind of do what you're told. You're not really empowered, right? So it's just not a good situation. Yes. And so with a, when you have a nurse that's brand new out of just out of nursing school, just past their NCLEX, working with a preceptor, sometimes working with a preceptor can be stressful because the preceptor is intimidating or the, the preceptor is mm-hmm. not really teaching you anything. Maybe they're kind of mean and bullying you. That happens. And so I could totally see a new grad nurse if the manager is, like you said, kind of gaslighting and, and just being like, oh, you do you really need more time? I mean, you look like you're doing it. You're handling it. You're doing everything. And I could see someone thinking that to themselves. Why do I even need this preceptor? That he or she just sits at the nurse's station all the time and is not even here for me when I have a question. Why not just go ahead and come off orientation and I don't have to have that extra pressure of them 
you know, telling me the way they want me to do things. Because there are certain preceptors who will kind of follow their orientee around and, and they will correct the way they do something that isn't important. Yeah. And and it's like, maybe that's the way you do it, but it doesn't have to be done that way. But they get all wrapped up in their own personality or their own ego and they focus on the wrong things. And that can be very frustrating for a new grad it, because they just feel like, I, I don't, especially if you, another thing that happens especially during times with staffing issues, is that new grads will get pawned off to different preceptors. So then you're with one preceptor for maybe three shifts, four shifts. And so that preceptor is saying, this is not how you do that. This is how you do it. This is the way you do this. No, what? why are you doing it that way? That's wrong. Where did Who taught you that? Is that what they were teaching you in nursing school yeah. these days? Okay, saying things like that. And then so then th- what's the new grad going to do? Okay, I'm going to do things the way this nurse does it. I'm, I don't want to get yelled at. So, And then you think you're doing it right. Then you get pawned off to a different preceptor the following week who then looks at you and go, why are you doing, who taught you that? Why would you do yeah. it that way? Is that what they're yeah. teaching you in nursing school these days? And you're just like, I can't win. <laughs> and so right. it can be and a And the reality frustrating- is in nursing, there's not always just one way to do things. You know, nurses mm-hmm. have the freedom to do things, certain things in their own way. But you also get certain personalities that have always done it this way for many years and they don't want to think of other ways or consider other ways. And that it can be a very stressful time for a new grad if you are getting conflicting information from different nurses. You don't know what to believe and it's very intimidating. And sometimes you just want if if you've got the nurse manager saying you're doing everything you can be you may even think it to yourself I'm doing this myself why do I need that preceptor just putting me under more stress right. I can just come off orientation I'll take my patients if I have a question I'll ask I'll just ask questions and it'll be fine and a lot of times it is okay and you figure it out and you struggle for a while and you learn and you ask questions and hopefully you have support. But then you put yourself in these situations where there is no one to ask a question to. You're working with people who are bullies and don't want to, that will treat you like you're an idiot for asking a question. Yeah. Um, that will just ignore you. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you before. Have you ever asked someone a question and they literally ignore you? Or they go and talk about you behind your back for asking Mm -hmm. the question. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. There is that culture of eating nurses, eating their young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I just feel so badly for newer nurses right now. We are burning them out quicker than we can get them graduated. We are burning them out and they're fleeing the profession. Yeah. And I say that, you know, we bring this up at and it's easy for for Eric and I both to get on a soapbox with this because both of our both of us are very passionate about advocating for nurses, especially new years new nurses, um, young nurses who we want to stick around and stay in the profession. We want I want to stay in the profession. I want other people to stay in the profession. I I want to advocate for the profession. But the point of it of bringing that up in this particular case is again we don't know the situation, but. It is almost, I am just, I swear, it's like 99.9% to me that this nurse had to be new in some way, either new to nursing or new to ICU. But even if you're new to ICU, I can't imagine a nurse that's got any amount of experience would not know what, what crushing up a medication and putting it in, you know, and hopefully, well, it doesn't even matter, but 
sterile water and putting it, you know, through a lot of times for NG tubes, a lot of hospitals will let nurses use tap water. Yeah, I've seen that as well. And, you know, the other thing is that as a new grad, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So there's the component of not having anyone available to ask a question of. But then there's the other component of you don't know what you don't know. So sometimes you're in situations and you think you're doing okay, but you've never seen or dealt with this before and you don't know what you don't. Yes, exactly. Well, in this particular case, I, it's, some, it's one that I'm going to try to keep an eye on. I have reached out to people who I know have a connection to this hospital, and I'm trying to get more information about it. So we'll have to do an update on it when I can get more information and try to get some more information about the lawsuit and what's going on If as we get more information. And as you guys um, know, if you can reach out to me and let me know if you happen to know anything about this particular case. Where it stands right now is, like, like Erica said, we're kind of waiting for a ruling on this to see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, the concern once again is this could set a precedent. So we told thousands of nurses across the country, you'll be safe. Don't worry if anything happens when you're severely understaffed during COVID without resources, you won't be held liable. And Mm -hmm. if this one goes through, it's setting yet another precedent saying, oh, you can actually be held liable. Even though it is a truly unthinkable mistake, it is hard to understand how this could have happened. It is. It really is. I this is it not is. a mistake that happened because someone was just like, oh, I meant to put that in the NG tube and instead it went into the IV line. That's That did not happen because there, there was a gross under, misunderstanding of everything to do with yeah. this whole system because the, that that would not happen. You don't just accidentally put a, mi- a mixture that you just concocted that would normally go into an NG tube or an OG tube. That you don't just accidentally put that in a central line because of the way that the tip of the central line is, you would know that yeah. you're that it's you're putting it in. She she had to have known. I'm sorry, but it, there's no way you didn't know that was going into the bloodstream, right? So, do I you mean, think that it was intentional? No, I don't know. I don't. Okay. I don't think that anyone, you know, in the from the article was saying that. I just think that it was somehow it was thought that medic it was okay to crush up meds and put it into an IV. Which somehow that you're saying. got completely okay. oh. Yeah. That got past this person somehow. That's um, un- so and if you take care if you work at the bedside and take care of patients for even a couple of years, you learn very quickly that there are patients out there who struggle with substance use disorder, who crush up pills and put them in some sort of water concoction and shoot it into their veins and end up dying of embolisms because of little pieces you know, of the pill. Mm-hmm. You know, you just can't do that. And so even if you didn't learn in nursing school that you couldn't do that, or even if common sense wouldn't tell you that you couldn't do that. Yeah. You, if you've been a nurse for any amount of time at all, you would surely have come across this. So it just almost has to have been a, a new nurse. It just, I don't see how it could not have been a new nurse, but. It would be interesting to know more details, you know, what the thought process was. Was this a patient that 
was NPO that couldn't have anything that maybe didn't have a tube and couldn't take anything by mouth. And I don't know, in their perception thought, well, I'll just give it via another route, IV route. Who, who knows? You know, it'll be really interesting to learn more as this story becomes more, more known. I'm really curious to, to learn more. Well, and the interesting thing is I looked up this whole thing of injecting oral medications into, you know, inadvertently injecting oral medications into an IV. And Erica and I were talking before the show, and I had said that there there's someone that I work with who said that there was someone that they had worked with in the past in a situation where they were drawing up Tylenol, not IV Tylenol, an elixir that's meant to be taken mm-hmm. orally, like red, you know, you can imagine that oral liquid, yeah. Tylenol. And they drew it up into a syringe and then they were about to give it IV. And this is something meant to be taken orally only. And they just asked that nurse and another nurse that was there, like, I, I'm, I'm giving this IV, right? Like she asked. And then of course, one of the nurses was a complete jerk and was just like, you idiot, you know, and called her every name and made her feel terrible. But she asked. And that's the thing. It's horrifying to think of things like that can happen. But there was obviously something in her mind led her, you know, caused her to look at that and question it. And she asked the question. And that's what we have to always do. And we also, when we make a mistake, we cannot commit felonies and try to cover it up in the medical record. We We cannot falsify documentation. Right. Yeah, we can't be doing that. Absolutely not. But there is an article from this one website, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices. And this article is actually from 2012. So it's a little bit back in the day, but they it sort of addressed this issue of inadvertent IV injection of oral liquids. And what this article says is that they occasionally would receive reports which patients where patients were inadvertently given an oral liquid medication intravenously. So now oral liquid that wasn't, you know, someone crushing it up and mixing it with with water and then injecting it. But still, it's a scary situation. And what what would happen is the pharmacy would be putting them into oral syringes. Mm -hmm. And I guess they worked with the Luralock system. And that's not appropriate. So we learn, because these medication errors happened, we would learn that, okay, we shouldn't be putting oral medications into a syringe that can hook onto in the same syringes right you know my background is pediatrics and we run into this mm -hmm. frequently because kids will take things but you know liquid but not in Mm -hmm. a pill form right and so they have of course now uh brown or different colored oral syringes that have a different tip on it that are completely different than an iv syringe for that very reason. Yeah, exactly. And and I know it's still cap- it's we are still capable of of making a mistake. We can still inadvertently administer that through an IV because I could definitely see a nurse who would, you know, looking at that and thinking, "Oh, I'll just put this squirt it into a cup and then draw it back out with a syringe that does have a lure lock on it and then injecting it because they think you're supposed to." So that's why it's so important to know. It's it, That's why, to me, it's so important to spend a long time, months in orientation, working directly with a preceptor, learning all these things, and, and asking stupid 
ask a stupid question. Am I supposed to crush these meds and, and mix them in the water and put them in the IV? Did that nurse think that was a stupid question? Did, was she afraid that someone was going to go, of course you are. What else are you going to do? How else are you going to get it into the patient? You know, like, and can we, do we have nurses who act like that and answer questions like that? Yeah, yes. that's why nurses are afraid to ask questions. But guys, you can't be afraid. You cannot let those bullies, those gaslighters, those people who just want to tear you down to elevate themselves cause you to be the kind of nurse that you don't want to be. You cannot, it doesn't matter. You are the better nurse for asking the question. They are not, they're not a good nurse if they're treating you that way. They may be fabulous at caring for patients, but they're not a good nurse if they treat other nurses that way. That's not part of what being a good nurse is. Absolutely. Yeah. Err on the side of caution and ask every time. Every single time. So, you know, we said that we finished up and we were kind of wrapped up that first story. But in fact, Erica, as soon as we got off, I mean, like literally, as soon as we got off from recording this episode, I got um, a text message from someone connected with someone who works at that hospital and got a little bit more information. And I was just kind of like, okay, that's interesting. And so, what my little tidbit of information was that nurse is still working at that hospital. So I was so shocked when I found that out, that nurse was still working there that I turned around and called you like right yeah. away. And so of course, we both talked about that, how shocking that was that given what we had discussed, and if we already said we were going by an art- a news article that we weren't sure what the facts are. There were definitely some mm-hmm. missing facts. Yes. And then after... (laughs) Because Erica, you came across some more information. Yes, someone else connected to the facility uh, reached out to me almost simultaneously as you had someone reach out to you and we received some more information. And of course, it's, you know, we still need to uh, confirm some of this, but it seems to be consistent. Mm -hmm. So it appears that it may have been an orientee that was responsible for this and not the primary nurse. Yeah. And that, again, the whole time we were recording this story, I kept saying, this has got to be a new person. This has got to be a new grad. There's no way this could be an experienced nurse. And another little tidbit of information that I got from my source was that this nurse had been a nurse for like 10 plus years. And I, I was so flabbergasted. I just could not believe it. Okay, wait. You're telling me that a, a nurse who is pr- who well who is working in an intensive care unit and has been a nurse for ten plus years crushed up oral pills into water and injected that into someone's intravenous line. I can't believe. I just can't even yeah, believe it that. Seems really I, unlikely. I just couldn't believe it. And then right away. Yes. And so then when you uh, called and were like, oh, wait, no, I have more information. This is an orientee. That makes so much more sense. And not only was it an orientee, let's do think back, okay, all the way back to the beginning of the show, we talked about what time period this was, what was going on, the horrors, literally, of fall of 2020, October 2020, and yeah. what was going on. It makes a lot more sense that there would be a new grad nurse being oriented on a busy ICU 
most likely tripled is what your yes, source said. Yes, they said, said that they were uh, tripled, which means you have three patients. And in any ICU, you should have one or two max. And in addition to being tripled, this nurse was given an orientee, which is also very time consuming. So, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a recipe for disaster. That's what happens when you don't have safe staffing, unfortunately. That's exactly right. And so why while I I think a lot of nurses are going to look at this situation and they're going to say, how could anybody make this mistake? This is a new nurse. This is a new nurse. I would venture to say this nurse did not understand that where she was putting this was going into the bloodstream. Now, I said earlier that if an experienced nurse would know that a central line is going into the bloodstream, but a new grad inexperienced nurse, there there are lines coming out and tubes coming out of everywhere on an ICU intubated patient that's sick like this. And so I, I am not surprised that a new grad nurse in that situation could possibly think that maybe this particular line is where that was supposed to go. And it's a terrible mistake. And I don't want to in any way take it away from that but it makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, I am surprised, but not surprised. You can only assume that the nurse that was orienting was not there at the bedside because they presumably would have absolutely caught it and stopped it. And, you know, again, that that's what happens when you are pulled in a million different directions and the orientee mm-hmm. most likely is already a licensed nurse in their own right. And so, you know, at what point, we don't know how long they had been orienting. So at what point do, you know, cut the apron strings, so to speak, and uh, let them do things on their own, especially when you're being pulled in mm-hmm. a million separate directions. And these are critically ill patients. Yes. So, ugh. Let's pl- I, and again, I, hes- I hesitate to even guess at anything just because we. I, I mean, I feel like I, I obviously got it. I don't feel like I got it wrong just because I knew uh, it had to be someone new. But I feel like I was kind of hard on the nurse, you know, before. But understanding the situation makes a lot more sense because I worked in COVID unit, the COVID ICU. I worked on a very busy ICU floor, and I there were many times. When I, I and my coworkers would look at each other and say, this is unsafe. Someone is going to get hurt. This is so, we're going to get, someone is, is going to lose their license because something is going to happen. There's no way we can be in this situation with all of us that are here, all having three patients on this busy ICU floor. And when I say three, I mean three very sick ICU patients. I don't mean a couple, like one, one or two med surge patients or ones ready to go to the floor. Those days are over. It's not like that. There are ICU patients at this time. That's what was going on. And no one answering the phone and no CNAs to help with turns. And no, it, so no one to cover you. If you have all of your staff with three patients, everybody is tripled. Everybody has three patients. What does some, how do you go to lunch? You don't. You're going to leave your three patients with somebody that already has three? This is the, this is, these are the conditions that these people are working under. Then they give you an orientee. Oh, this is a new grad nurse. This nurse is going to start working with you. This is October. I would venture to, to guess 
that they probably graduated. Wouldn't you say they probably graduated in maybe July? Yeah, a lot of nursing programs have summer programs. And so they would graduate towards the end of August. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would venture to say that's probably what happened, that they've graduated at the end of the summer. And so now they're in the fall and they're in their orientation. You know, they probably had to wait a month or so to -hmm. take their NCLEX. And so then in October, that would make them brand spanking new. And then they're put with this experienced nurse. And by the way, I have heard that this nurse is a wonderful nurse, very sharp, very intelligent, fabulous ICU nurse, not a nurse you'd want to lose, especially in this day and time when we're needing nurses. So what do you say to that? I don't know. I, this, is, this is difficult. It's another situation. Now, this nurse, is, as far as we know, not been prosecuted. This nurse is covered, I guess, and the hospital's covered by that COVID-19 law. And Erica, I guess it works. I, I believe both of those nurses are still working there. That's my understanding. Yeah. And so that we can assume means that the hospital is standing by them in some way. But, you know, this is kind of why, let's play devil's advocate, why that federal emergency COVID order was put into place, you know, because they knew that there would be really unsafe working conditions and that would inevitably result in perhaps some sentinel events or adverse events. And that's kind of why it exists. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this case moving forward. Do you think that the general public really understood, and let's face it, understands because we're still in a crisis. We still don't have, I know COVID is over and everybody thinks everything's going to go back to normal, but we are in a crisis. We do not have nurses working at the bedside or CNAs or health unit coordinators. We are, hospitals are desperate for workers right now. Do you think that the general public really understood at the time how bad it was, how dangerous it really was to go to a hospital? No, not at all. And I don't think they understand even now just how perilous it is. And, you know, if you ask a nurse if they would be going to a hospital, 99% of the time we'll say no. We have to be on death's door before we or anyone that we care about goes to the hospital because we know, unfortunately, it is that unsafe right now. Well, we had to jump back on here and kind of make an addendum to this episode just because there were lots of questions. We wanted to talk about it. You know, Redonda's sentencing is coming up soon. And so any opportunity to bring awareness to the circumstances, awareness to the situation that Redonda is in, how important it is to have the backs of healthcare workers who make mistakes and not not have people worried that they're going to be arrested and charged criminally for making a mistake while they're doing their job. We cannot have this. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. 
until she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing, uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Well, I guess we kind of beat that dead horse, right? <laughs> so we can move on to our good nurse story. I always say we save the good nurse story for last because, you know, it's not as dark, but sometimes the good nurse stories are still sad because bad things happen and sometimes good things come out of those bad things. So this is one of those cases. I just want to let you guys know, just to give you a little trigger warning, it does involve someone taking their own life. So I just wanted to put that out there. It's, it is a sad story, but something good does come out of it. Erica is real familiar with this story. She's covered it on her TikTok, and I came across it and was just completely just kind of, I don't know, just really sad, I guess is the, the about the best way, uh, best word that, that I can use to think about what this nurse must have been going through. But this is from an article from NPR.org. It's called... And this is just from March 30th of 2022, uh, March 31st from 2022. So it just came out. And yeah. this article is called, A Nurse's Death Raises the Alarm About the Profession's Mental Health Crisis. So, Erica, this is awful. I mean, J January 18th. It, it really is. Yeah. So January 18th, Stanford Medical Center in California, an ICU nurse. He was a travel nurse. He was, I believe, about 27 years old, but a fairly experienced nurse. He had several travel assignments from what I understand. And he was working night shift and he abruptly around 4, 4.30 a.m. said to his co-workers that he had to go get something out of his car and he left and never came back. Now he was missing for about two days or so and the police were searching for him. I was covering the story during that time. Everybody was just hoping that there would be a good outcome and all of his friends and family came forward and said, you know, they, they just can't imagine that he would leave mid-shift. You know, as a nurse, that's a big deal. That's really patient abandonment and your license is at risk. And that's not something that really happens very often. But unfortunately, they they did find him about two days or so afterwards. They found his body in the, I believe it was the San Francisco Wildlife Refuge in the water. 
And so they did come forward, I believe the family and say that they suspect that he took his own life. Yeah, exactly. It's really sad. Who knows what in the world could have been going through his mind at the time that 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 was the answer to how he was feeling. It is a wake up call to all of us and to everyone. And I wanted to talk about this because I want there, there are people that listen to this podcast that aren't medical, that aren't in healthcare, because they have messaged me and told me like, hey, I'm, I'm not a nurse, I'm not in healthcare, but I just like listening to the podcast. And I'm always fascinated by that. I'm always like, wow, because it, it is, we do have a true crime element, but there, we do talk a whole lot about nursing on this podcast. So I always wonder, you know, what they think about all the stuff that we say. But I want people to stop and think about, you know, we I've been talking so much about the Redondavat case, trying to advocate for not criminalizing nurses and healthcare professionals for making mistakes. But let's go back to what nurses and healthcare people who work in healthcare are going through right now. And maybe we need to stop and think about the weight that's placed on us and the environment that we're working in. And this is what for some reason, this nurse felt like this was the only out. I don't know why. I don't pretend to know why, but this is sad. I mean, what it are is. we coming to when you know our we're working in this environment and he's in healthcare and does not see any resources to help him through right. this? And you know, in my perception, if this is really at uh, almost an epidemic uh, proportion amongst healthcare workers after the last two years. We are really failing at addressing moral distress. And this is something that anyone in healthcare that has worked during the past two years and even prior to that it has experienced on some level. And there are very few mental health resources available to nurses and to healthcare workers. Unfortunately, we are really taught to just put on our game face and put it behind us and move forward. We are not really often allotted the opportunity to grieve or to uh, work through anything. And we see horrific, unforgettable things that haunt us and stay with us often for many years. And uh, we really need more resources available. And we need to take the stigma away. You know, if a nurse says, I'm not okay, I need a week off, I, whatever, I need to speak to a therapist, that needs to not be used against the nurse in a negative fashion. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. The, this article does go on to sort of explain that he had been struggling for quite some time because he had worked right during the heart of the pandemic and in on you know COVID units, taking care of, of COVID patients, watching patients die alone. They said that he had attempted to take his own life previously, and they knew that he was struggling, that he had been in crisis before. One reason he was living there, that he had moved there, was his friends wanted, didn't want him to be alone, wanted him to, to come there so that they could help. They started a, something called Wellness Wednesdays, where they would check in with him and each other regularly and provide emotional support. So you just wonder, like, what else can we do? And I think that if you go all the way back to the problem, just like what you were saying, if the support had been there from the beginning, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about like just the, the types of things that you that we saw during the pandemic, where like you, I don't know, what did they call the rooms that you can go into and and have a moment to yourself? There were so many things that that were put into place 
that were like a little Band-Aid yes, on the problem. Absolutely. When the real problem, but yeah, the real problem was staffing. The real pl- problem was a lack of support. The real problem was focusing on not supporting the, the nursing staff, but focusing on still, even during the height of the pandemic, on customer satisfaction and worrying about what people think and not, you can't, don't say we're short-staffed. Sometimes having to decide which patient you're going to be able to help and take care of because you're spread that thin and you know that you can't possibly do enough for all of them. So maybe this patient is a little sicker and you're going to focus your time and attention more so on them, but at the expense mm-hmm. sometimes of another patient's uh, life or well-being. Now imagine being forced into those positions and you keep saying, this isn't safe, this isn't safe, we need more help, and no one's listening and no one cares. And you go through that again and again and again, and that really is what leads to moral distress. His friends said that whenever they would get together, a lot of times what they talked about was the fact that they were having to witness death every day. We know when we go into nursing that there's a possibility we're going to see someone die. I don't think that we realize or that we stop to think about what that's going to be like. Or maybe we think that only happens in certain settings and where we're going to be working, we're probably not going to see that. And then you start working at the bedside, depending on what unit you work in, and you realize you see it more than, at least I did. I I saw people die more than I ever imagined I would before COVID. Just, it just happens, you know, just naturally through whether it's comfort care or whatever, someone happens to code, it does happen in hospitals. And then, but then, You have COVID come along and you have nurses working in these units where people are literally dying every day. Mm -hmm. And so like what these nurses are saying is every other hour you'd get a new patient and then they would die. And you would you would get a new another patient. You would get you would have family members. You would have grandfather, son sisters, uncle. And and you're the one in there holding the iPad as they say goodbye to their family. Imagine doing that day in and day out. Yes. And I just think, I think, you know, and people are like, oh, heroes. Yay. You know, you're just wonderful. You're so strong. Well, no, we're just human beings. We're not heroes. <laughs> we're not strong. We're just human beings that are trying to take care of people and do our job. And you can only take so much before it just wears on you. And so now we are in a point in our country where, and I probably I would imagine all over the world, where these healthcare workers who have been caring for these patients and watching so much death and in such a depressing way where they're completely alone and they die over a long period of time, day, you know, days or hours, or you literally watch them die and you're caring for them. That is wearing on people. And now we're starting to see what's emerged from that. Absolutely. This is the end result of what we have been saying would happen if you don't change our working conditions, right? Right. And you would think that people would be able to see that. Hospital administrators, people who are making the decisions would be able to see that. And yet not a lot has changed. Not a lot has changed. You know, I think when it comes right down to it, do I have all the answers of what would fix it? I don't think I have all the answers, but I think there's some kind of common sense things that really should, anyone should be able to figure out. And that is nurses working at the bedside need to be paid a salary, paid a wage that is some that they can 
live that's sustainable. Well, and that's equivalent to the level of responsibility that we take. Mm -hmm. That is exactly right. And so, so many nurses are not in so many states are nowhere near getting paid for the level of responsibility that they've uh, been given and the amount of education that they're required and all of those things. And also the support, you know, that you may, even if you have insist on the correct nurse to patient ratios and you somehow manage to get that right, then you don't have nursing assistants to help mm-hmm. turn patients and help with baths and actually assist with patient care. You don't have someone there at the desk answering phones, answering call lights, monitoring telemetry. Right. You're doing everyone else's job and they're not granting Mm -hmm. uh, vacation requests to nurses because Mm -hmm. the staffing doesn't allow for it. So we're never getting a break. You know, we have earned the time off, but we put in a request and it keeps getting denied. So nurses never really get a chance to get away from it, to decompress, to de-stress and come back and, you know, kind of refill their cup. Yeah, that's exactly right. The friends of this nurse are working to try to create a mental health movement that would be dedicated uh, to his memory and um, also not his, just his memory that those nurses that we've lost in the past two years and really going forward, if you stop and think about it, this is not, I don't think this is something that is going to end anytime soon. The repercussions, you know, that are going to happen from the past, what's gone on for the past two years. Our hospitals are not being held accountable. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We haven't seen the worst. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, I don't think so either. And the hospital systems are not being held accountable. We are going to have to have legislation in order to make a difference. Our legislators, our lawmakers are going to have to pass laws that are that protect patients and healthcare workers. And by protect, I mean force hospital systems to have adequate nurse to patient ratios and adequate support. Absolutely. You know, if left to their own devices, which they are currently, except perhaps in California, healthcare administrators will never just willingly staff well or staff appropriately because that equates to loss of revenue for them. Right. So it's only until they are forced to either through mandated legislation, so laws forcing them to, or through nursing unions that have collective bargaining agreements holding them accountable to certain ratios. Otherwise, they just will not do it on their own. Well, the organization that that they're working on or the project that they're working on, they're calling Don't Clock Out. And the idea behind the name is don't clock out of life because of the fact that he he left before the end of his shift. He clocked out, you know, early and left. And so they said that over 250 healthcare workers have signed up to provide support. And apparently a law firm is providing pro bono support to help get their group chartered. Nice. And they hope to launch the group in the next couple of months. That's amazing. You know, whenever you can have some good to come from a tragedy, that's really amazing. You know, another component is the EAP, the employee assistance personnel. Most larger hospitals will have someone that's supposed to be a counselor available to employees. Well, unfortunately, they only have one typically on staff. And 
I've been hearing from nurses for two years that, you know, they're calling and calling. They finally get through to make an appointment because they're trying to be proactive about their mental health. And they are given an appointment that's six weeks down the line. You know, that's not enough. We have to do more. So I'm so pleased that they are starting this organization to provide resources. And I hope that it can. I, I, again, this all goes back to legislation. I think for me, it's the lawmakers that can make a difference in this country. We do not give enough resources to mental health uh, in our country. And so why would it take you six weeks to make an appointment? Stop and think about that. It's because there aren't providers available. So why aren't there providers available? They probably aren't making enough money to, for it to be, you know, for them to be beneficial for them to do that job. If there are a lack of people out there doing that job and it's causing uh, a backup, a backflow, you know, of appointments, we have to do whatever we need to do to get more people into those professions. And generally that means more money. And and I'm not somebody that's like looking for money. I've I've never been that, that kind of a person, but I know that the things in this country have increasingly gotten more and more expensive. And by things, I mean everything just to live Mm -hmm. Houses, cars, gas, milk, bread, everything has gotten more expensive. What has not really gone up exponentially are wages. Minimum wage hasn't gone up in, what, 20 years? Yeah, and even cost of living increases are being withheld from employees. So you're essentially earning less money than you were before because the bottle of water that used to cost 89 cents at the same wage you're making now costs $2.10, you know? So you're actually bringing home less money. Well, Erica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been a great episode. I think we've talked about a lot of really uh, good things and hopefully bring in awareness and help to educate people and maybe spark some discussion. Remind everybody where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at The Nurse Erica and on Facebook at Nurse Erica. And of course, you know, you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com. And I'm on obviously all the places where you listen to podcasts, but also we're on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. And we've even started doing TikTok lately. Yes, you have. <laughs> so, yeah, and don't forget to go to Facebook and look up that Facebook group, Nurses March for Redonda Vaught, and sign up and go in there and, and sign up for an RSVP for the event if you plan on attending. Yes, please. We would love to know. And I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. 